B. I suppose after three years there would be a wide-ranging variety of answers to that question, some positive, some negative. The truth is, I can write both in my own self-evaluation, and if I can be transparent with you, I'm really good at writing the negative ones about myself. Uh, for my part, though, I can tell you that for the better part of three decades, my sense of calling has been captivated by what the psalmist writes about David. These words have been life verses to me, and they reflect the aspiration I hope for my life and my calling as an under-shepherd for the Lord. In Psalm 78, we read these words, He, that is God, chose David his servant to, and took him from the sheep pens. From tending sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people Jacob, of Israel his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. Now, a crown and a throne notwithstanding, what compels me about this passage is that it spells out so clearly the things that go into making a good shepherd, God-chosen, humble beginnings, a basic task of caring for people and helping them, and the combination of a heart that longs to do the right thing before God and for people, coupled with the clarity and courage and commitment to lead well. Now, what is true for you in your life is also true for me and mine. I continually fall short of God's calling and my own aspirations, and I'm utterly dependent upon Him and His grace to complete me as He already has in Christ. Still, I'm earnest about the task. I am sobered by the responsibility. I feel its weight uh, on me. I often think of Paul's words to the elders in Ephesus where he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock with which, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. Or James' words where he writes, not many of us should seek this kind of responsibility because we will be judged with greater strictness. In the past three years, uh, we have had losses, and these hurt. A CEO type might view these as necessary, but for a pastor shepherd, uh, it, uh, he takes them to heart. Such losses weigh on me. <clears throat> they can keep you up at night. And when the losses don't make sense or people won't sit down and talk with you about differences, they easily become fodder for the enemy to wage warfare against you. But gospel good and kingdom advances that God has made here far outweigh the losses. And I believe that part of what accounts for that, at least as it regards my role as a pastor, is that I was called here to make much of Jesus Christ, to make disciples, uh, and to tell you the truth of God's word even when you might have a hard time hearing it. With the heart of a servant leader, if you know nothing else about me, know this, I'm highly motivated to echo the Apostle Paul in saying, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. As a shepherd, I want to love you and care for you in the Lord's stead as the Father does. I want to see you grow as a disciple. I want you to know Jesus intimately. I want you to make strides in walking away from sin and learning how to walk in the victory that is yours in Christ Jesus. I want you to know the joy of total surrender to God and the pulse-racing excitement of responding to the promptings of the Holy Spirit as He chooses to use you in service of Christ's mission. I want, it, I want your love for God to deepen as you fall more in love with His Word. I want you to be a good theologian. As the Apostle says, one who is approved by God, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of Truth. I want Jesus' bride to mean as much to you as she does to God. I want your heart to be flooded with joy. I want you to live well and to love uh, out loud, and I want you to laugh as often as possible. 
I want you to be prepared to follow God in all of the highs and lows, the ups and downs that this life is going to throw at you. And when your end should come in this vapor of an existence, I want a smile of resilient trust in Jesus to grace your face. And when you slip from this sin-stained, war-torn, suffering world into an eternal presence before God, I want you to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is why I came. Now, I begin this way today because as we return to the Gospel of Mark, I do so for two reasons. Number one, uh, because today we will consider one day in the life of Jesus, just roughly a 24-hour period in which we will see the compassion of Christ, we'll be confronted with his unmatched power and authority, uh, and we will hear Jesus proclaim, this is why I came. And it might challenge what or who you want Jesus to be. A second, I begin this way because I earnestly do care for you. And I recognize, especially in our day and age, that I might not all, we might not always agree, but I implore you to consider that my motivation and my responsibility is to protect God's flock from fierce wolves, from men who speak twisted things to draw away disciples after them. As we will see, Satan and his minions love to hang around religion. Scripture tells us that he masquerades as an angel of light, so it stands uh, to good reason that not everything that purports to be from God is actually from God, which is why we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and pay attention to his word. Pray with me. Lord, please grant us ears to hear and eyes to see. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word, O Lord, is truth. Grant, O God, that we might be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves as you are sending us out as sheep among wolves. Lord Jesus, help us to fix our eyes and affections upon you and to learn from you to be prepared in every way for the life that you are leading us to, which none of us knows what a day may bring. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now Mark chapter uh, 1, we'll begin in verse 21. I won't take time this morning uh, to retrace our steps through the power-packed, fast-paced prologue uh, of Mark's gospel. Uh, his narrative of Jesus' life begins in earnest uh, in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, where Jesus begins to preach the good news, namely, that the time has come for the inbreaking of God's dominion, his kingdom, and it calls for the response of repentance and faith. And then last week in verses 16 through 20, we saw him begin to exercise his authority by calling men to follow him as disciples, and now he begins to train them as he launches his public ministry. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Capernaum is the northernmost city on the Sea of Galilee. It happens to be the hometown or, or where Peter's, Simon's home is. And so naturally it becomes uh, the, the operational base for Jesus' ministry. Uh, it's here in, in Capernaum uh, that Jesus is going to begin. And it happens that the launch of his ministry takes place on the Sabbath. Sabbath harkens back to the Old Testament to the very beginning where God creates in six days and rests upon the Sabbath. He creates in the law for his people a, a way to mark the importance not only of uh, taking a Sabbath rest, but of remembering uh, their uh, dependence upon God, that they need God to do for them. And so this is what the Sabbath marks. But it also harkens forward to the future, to a time when God's kingdom, his dominion, is going to break in again, and he is going to bring shalom. He is going to, to bring the Sabbath rest, and it will be forever. It will last forever. So it looks back. And the Sabbath also looks forward. 
it's a, a very important principle when we study scriptures called the now, not yet. And so when you're reading the Bible, oftentimes you'll, you'll see something happening and there's a, a sense in which it's happening now, but there's something about it that is not yet. And that is what we see in the Sabbath. We'll also see it in some other th- ways in this passage. That there's a sense in which when we mark the Sabbath, when in our day, when we find a day to rest and we honor what God said is important for our souls, then we're, we're honoring something that God established in the past. But we're always also reminding ourselves that there is a day coming when every day will be marked by shalom. Every day will be marked by God's peace. So it's now, but it's also not yet. So Jesus goes uh, in Capernaum to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And the, the, the synagogue is an assembly house. It's a meeting place. When Israel was driven out of uh, the promised land, all over the world where Israelites found themselves uh, occupying, they would build these little assembly houses. What was required was you had to have at least 10 uh, male Jewish males at least thir- age 13 or older, and you could build a little synagogue. And when they returned to Israel, because of the distance that it took to travel to Jerusalem, they would build these instructional places where the Torah could be taught. You still had to go to Jerusalem to sacrifice, but you'd have a synagogue. And everywhere a synagogue was built, it would be built in such a way that it faced Jerusalem. So when the speaker, uh, the teacher, the rabbi was teaching, he was facing Jerusalem. And when the people exited the synagogue, they were facing Jerusalem. So it was an important place in the life of the Hebrews. It was a place where they could learn more about God's word. Verse 22, Jesus is teaching. And the response is, in verse 22, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Uh, the, the word authority, exousia, in, in the Greek, it means innate power. They recognize something different about Jesus. Some people have a power that is inherited. Uh, They grew up in a family business, and they inherit the leadership of that. Some people have a delegated power. Uh, The congregation uh, and the leadership of this church delegated uh, a responsibility to me. And some people have achieved uh, a power or achieved authority. They prove themselves. A doctor goes through a lot of training to have uh, approved or achieved authority. But Jesus' authority is is different. What this word designates is that uh, his, his authority is somehow supernatural in origin. It's used nine times in the Gospel of Mark. Six times it will be used of Jesus, and three times it will be used when Jesus confers upon his, his disciples, who will be apostles, exousia, this innate power to accomplish things. And what they said about Jesus' teaching is that he didn't teach like the scribes did. Now, scribes uh, were rabbis. This, it's a, it's, it means honored one. And rabbis were kind of like utility infielders. They, uh, they did a lot of different things. They were specialists or professors in the Torah. Uh, they were also able to uh, teach. Uh, they were moralists. Uh, and then they also served as civic lawyers to settle disputes. So they, they taught. And, and what the, what the uh, crowd observed was that Jesus' teaching was different from them. When a rabbi would stand up to teach, he would, he would often quote another rabbi. Uh, This rabbi says this, and this rabbi says that. But Jesus didn't do that. He taught like he was getting it firsthand, because guess what? He was. He is the Logos. And they immediately recognized his exousia, this this innate power about Jesus. So Jesus is teaching, and the people are full of awe for, for how he's teaching. We don't know what he's teaching. The focus of Mark is that Jesus was the one speaking. doesn't matter what he was saying. Everyone was captivated. 
And then immediately, euthus, that word that recurs so often, verse 23, immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So Jesus is teaching, and the crowd is enraptured by the authority with which he teaches, and there's a a demon-possessed man undetected in their midst, which tells you something about the state of the church. Tells you something about what was happening in the synagogue. And he has taken it so long he can't take it anymore. And so seizing the man's vocal cords, he shrieks loudly to confront Jesus. It's a deliberate provocation. Provocation, excuse me. And Jesus didn't uh, invite the occasion. He was there to teach. Uh, But this is the fight he came for. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the wake of the fall, God is pronouncing judgment upon Adam and Eve and the serpent who deceived them. And he says to the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. This is the fight that Jesus came for. And Mark makes it abundantly clear, we will see it consistently, uh, the forces of Satan and his minions uh, ceasing, uh, uh, attempting to undercut uh, what Jesus came to do. Now, at this time, there was a superstition. Uh, it was a naming ritual. It was believed that if you understood a person's identity, that you could actually gain control over them. And we see this here. The demon calls Jesus by two names. The first, he calls him with antagonism. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, the second, though, he calls him a name out of fear. He recognizes him as the Holy One of God. And he asks this question as though he's asking on behalf of all demons, What have you to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? He knows full well the answer to that question. Verse 25, Jesus speaks. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying crying with with an out loud voice came out of him. Again, we're going to see that all were amazed. Jesus exercises this demon, which in turn heals the man, but it is secondary to the story. Uh, In fact, Jesus' healings are often mostly seen uh, in response to a pressing need rather than a part of a program that Jesus sets out to follow. Mark wishes us to be, for it to be evident to us that Jesus is not here to provide temporary relief from ailments. He has come to destroy the powers of darkness. 1 John 3, 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Demonic activity has never been greater in this world than it was the three years that Jesus was conducting his ministry. Not, Not before, not after. I know it's bad. I know we feel like it's bad, but Satan and his minions, uh, uh, they threw an all-out blitz to try to crush Jesus because he was there to destroy them. This is the fight that Jesus had to engage in order to redeem us from our sins. Regarding demon possession, for instance, outside of Genesis chapter 6, it never happens in the Old Testament. It only happens twice in the book of Acts, but here in the Gospels, we see that it abounds over and over Jesus, on on occasion, delegates authority to his disciples to handle demons. But apart from Jesus and the apostles, the New Testament uh, never presents exorcism as either normative or something that Christian believers should engage in. Uh, The only occasion when non-apostles attempt to perform an exorcism in Scripture, it goes horribly for them, the seven sons of Sceva. 
So in, in our day, post the cross and the resurrection, it re, regardless of what a person's ailment is, whether it's demonic or something else, we preach the gospel. And if the Holy Spirit can woo someone to Jesus in the gospel, then he'll take care of the rest. We're not to engage. Michael the archangel uh, would not dispute with Lucifer over the body of Moses. That should be telling to us. We need to stay close to Christ and let him do the heavy lifting. Now Jesus issues two imperative commands here. He says, be silent and come out. And the demon has no choice but to respond with what Jesus said uh, after convulsing the man uh, and then screaming. And this is going to stand as a contrast between the response of the people and the response of the demons. The demons recognize Jesus for who he is, but the people don't. And this is a caution for us. We see here that knowledge of Jesus does not equate to trust in Jesus. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. You see, the, the demons were terrified and they could not be saved. And the people were amazed at Jesus and they would not be saved. Verse 27 says, and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority, exousia. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. All, literally everyone, they were amazed. The word means uh, to strike, to astound, to be astonished. Again, what they noted about Jesus was that his exousia was innate. innate. He, he, he was innately powerful. And the text leads us to ask the question, why does Jesus command them to be silent if they know who he really is? And here Mark introduces for us the servant motif. The Messiah is the servant of the Lord. He came to do the Father's bidding. Uh, he will not be uh, prompted or initiated or engaged by anyone besides the Father. On the Father's time, he will do things. And so his life is marked by restraint and humbleness. And he channels his power in hiddenness. Because the human heart can never be changed merely by coercion or by, through the display of miraculous deeds. And so even though what happens in the synagogue is good for the man who was demon-possessed, it's leading people in the wrong direction, verse 28. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This section ends with a firestorm of Jesus' fame uh, spreading around Galilee. The enemy has provoked Jesus' hand, and Jesus has dealt with him, uh, and, and now he is becoming known as a miracle worker. It's become front-page news. And just like that, people are going to begin following Jesus for the wrong reason and for the wrong thing. Mark chapter 1, verse 29. Mark couples these again with the word euthus. Immediately, he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever and immediately, euthus, they told him about her. As soon as the service is over in the synagogue, Jesus and the four disciples retreat to Simon's house. We happen to know uh, from archaeological discoveries that Simon's house was very close to the synagogue in Capernaum, so they're there quickly. Upon their arrival, they euthus, immediately tell Jesus about uh, Simon's mother-in-law, that she's ill. Now, back in the day, they didn't have Tylenol, and uh, because they couldn't diagnose what was the underlying cause of a fever, oftentimes it would lead to death. But today... Jesus is in the house. So verse 31, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. 
So already on this day, Jesus has demonstrated the innate power of his words. He spoke to the demon, and the demon was obliged to comply. Now he's going to show his innate power through his touch. He doesn't say anything to Simon's mother-in-law. He touches her. Immediately, instantaneously, she's healed, and he restores her to purpose. In healing Simon's mother-in-law, Jesus gave the disciples a miniature reproduction of the proper response of a disciple to Jesus, to serve the master as I am able. So inasmuch as he is doing something in your life, the response, the appropriate response is to serve him as we are able. Uh, the word serve there uh, that, that speaks of, of what Jesus restored Simon's mother-in-law to do is the same word used of the Holy Spirit uh, in chapter 1 where he's ministering to Jesus. It's the same word that Jesus is going to use in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 when he says, I, I have not come to, to be served but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So a uh, big showdown in the synagogue, uh, healing at Peter, Simon Peter's house, and then verse 32 uh, continues, that evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. It was after 6 p.m., which means the Sabbath has ended now. Uh, and while the people uh, wouldn't dare do anything that would make them look guilty in the eyes of the law, just as soon as possible, as soon as the Sabbath was over, they started bringing everyone who was sick or possibly demon-possessed to Jesus. The scripture says the whole city gathered at Simon Peter's door. Uh, and though the, the English word says uh, some, it's a little bit misleading, or, or that rather many, it, it might suggest that only some got healed. But that's not the emphasis of Mark. The Greek puts emphasis on the fact that there were many who needed help, and everyone who needed help got everyone who needed help got it from Jesus. Mark underscores that Jesus' innate power is unlimited. He can speak it, he can touch it. There's no end to what he can do with it. Now it's also important to note that Jesus makes a distinction between natural illnesses and that which is demonic. This is important because there's a pastor in Tennessee right now who's garnered much attention for a trafficking in the sensational. He's most recently claimed uh, that everything is demonic. So if your child has autism, or if you have ADHD, or my dad has Parkinson's, it's demonic in nature. And friends, this is not only incredibly dangerous, it's unscriptural. We live in a world that is marked by sin and sickness and death. And much of what we experience in this life is the byproduct of the brokenness that exists within us and in the world. And so Jesus, here again, silences the demons. Only this time we're told that the reason why he did it is because they know who he is. Now verse 35. <clears throat> Mark keeps the story moving by linking this section with the conjunction and. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. The use of the compound phrase, uh, while it was early and it was still dark, suggests to us that it's not daybreak, it's more like the middle of the night. So Jesus spends the entire day ministering uh, to the entire city of Capernaum, gets very little sleep, and then he retreats to a desolate place. That's the same word for wilderness that we've seen where John is baptizing and where Jesus goes to be tempted. He goes to a desolate place to seek the Father. After the events of the previous day, Jesus needs to commune with the Father. Prayer is a key uh, to Jesus' ministry, and Jesus always turns to the Father at pivotal moments, at moments of crisis. Uh, 
Though prayer was and is an important part of Jesus' service, here in Mark, we only see him go to the Father three times. Here, at the beginning of his ministry, uh, following the feeding of the multitudes in the middle of his ministry, and in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end of his ministry. In his humanity, it is not difficult to see that Jesus is not only exhausted, that he might be tempted. Tempted to succumb to the seductive appeal of instant success and the allure of popularity. So he prays. In each case where Jesus prays, it marks a pivotal moment where he's facing temptation. He seeks the Father's affirmation and he wants to renew his commitment to do the Father's will. Because it would be awfully appealing to just go with the popularity, to just go with the flow. So Jesus is praying, and Simon and those who are with him, verse 36, search for him. The word search is an aggressive term. It means to pursue or to hunt. There's a, a sense of urgency with negative connotations. They're frustrated that they can't find Jesus. Verse 37, once they find Jesus, Peter says, Everyone is looking for you. Again, Simon Peter's words connote uh, an attempt to control or, or to determine Jesus' schedule rather than to simply submit to him and follow. The entire town, like, this is what you came for, right? Everybody wants to know where you are. You've got the magic hand. Let's get back to the crowd. And Jesus' response catches us a bit off guard because in verse 38 he says, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Jesus knows uh, his growing popularity has little to do with who he is. The people are attracted to him for what he was doing. Signs like healings and exorcisms are meant to substantiate Jesus' authority and his role as, uh, as Messiah. But Jesus knows full well that while signs may attest, they do not lead to faith. They do not foster a deep, abiding trust. And Jesus doesn't want to be known as a magician, as a miracle worker, as a divine vending machine from heaven. There is a great temptation in our day to desire a sign from God, to which uh, God might do something visible or tangible that kind of bolsters our shaky confidence and substantiates that what we believe is true. And there are many in our day who crave the kind of crowd that Jesus was reluctant to cultivate who promised to be able to do these things. And friends, that is not faith. And what Jesus is about is deepening our faith. You think about it. The, the showdown in the synagogue and, and the spectacle that that must have been and the awe and wonder people were filled with not only at his words but at his power. Uh, raising uh, Simon Peter's mother... Uh, he didn't tell her to get some rest, uh, take a few days off, eat some chicken soup. He immediately restored her and she was serving. And then as long as it took to minister to the entire town of Capernaum, healing anyone who needed to be healed, uh, casting out demons where they needed to be cast out. And in the course of one day, Capernaum had witnessed such incredible, miraculous work, more than all of us combined over the course of our lifetime. And yet they remained spiritually unchanged. It is no wonder that Jesus spoke so strongly about the fate of Capernaum. In Matthew chapter 11, he says, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be thrown down to hell. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, 
it would have, been, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable for, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Verse 39. And he went through Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus' message, the gospel, is to turn away from your sinful lifestyle, repent, and trust and serve him to believe. Instead, the people are coming to Jesus for relief from physical ailments. But Jesus came to preach the good news that God is going to purchase your forgiveness from sin and the ultimate healing that will be yours for your soul. Note here that Mark drops healing. He says Jesus preaches and casts out demon. Now, we will see Jesus heal again, but Mark's aim is to underscore that the nature of Christ's compassion must ultimately be aimed at the spiritual warfare before him. Preaching and casting out demons are the two main thrusts of his attack on the powers of darkness. And that leads us uh, to verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, ostensibly, this is the next town that Jesus has come to. We're closing in on a 24-hour period in the time uh, uh, life of Jesus Christ uh, and Jesus in Canaan, uh, who is uh, cursed with leprosy. Mark understates uh, what a highly provocative and offensive encounter this is. Uh, and I want you to notice something meaningful about this leper in comparison to everyone we saw yesterday in Capernaum. But let's deal with the leper first. Leprosy is a skin disease. It's, uh, there's a myriad of, uh, of things it could be, uh, but it is usually associated with scaling and peeling and in some cases appendages falling off. And it doesn't have to be severe. As soon as there's a blemish on the skin in the Old Testament, they would treat that almost as a, a death sentence. The person would be stigmatized. They would be isolated. They would be rejected. It was like a death sentence. Leviticus chapter 13 says that they were to tear their clothes, they were to cover half of their face, they were to walk around crying out unclean, they had to stay outside the city, and they had to maintain a safe distance from anyone else. They were isolated and alone. And this man breaks the rules. He's willing to risk in coming to Jesus, and he implores him, kneeling before him, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus does something incredible. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now the word pity has two possible translations. It can either mean viscerally moved with compassion, like deep in the gut, or it can mean anger. And if anger, then why? Is Jesus angry at the ravages of the disease? Is he upset with the man for how he's about to disobey him? Or is it just sin and the evil one. Regardless of what it is, Jesus does the unthinkable. Again, he could have spoken, but he doesn't. He enters the man's world, and he touches him. And here Jesus shows the contrast between himself and the priest. Jesus could make clean. Uh, the priest could only observe and declare a person clean. Mark draws our attention to Jesus' willingness to take our place. Jesus is saying to the leper, I'm prepared to become by choice what you are by nature, a man under the judgment of the law in order to share with you what I have, righteousness, freedom, and life. But this is not the cleansing that can accomplish that. Jesus is demonstrating that the way in which God's kingdom comes is through him identifying himself with us and our sin and bearing that judgment of the law of God upon himself on the cross 
and thus enabling us by grace through faith to identify with him. And again, the healing is instantaneous. Euthus. He touches the man, and the man is changed. Verse 43, and Jesus sternly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. The double negative here makes Jesus' words emphatic. Again, uh, the, 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 the phrase sternly charged uh, connotes anger. It literally means to snort like a horse. Uh, it's a great internal agitation. And, and when it says he sends him away, it's the same word cast out that Jesus has been using when he m- removes demons. It's a strong emotion. He commands this man to be silent. Jesus knew how easily miracles would be misunderstood, that they would gather a crowd of followers who were interested in exclusively what Jesus could do for them, signs and wonders, but that it would not change the human heart. Having cleansed him, then Jesus reinforces Torah. Because the inbreaking of God's dominion, the kingdom is coming, Jesus is here to establish it, but it's a now and not yet. And so until it's permanent... He tells this man, do what the law tells you to do. Travel to Jerusalem. Now, this is is, is very subtle here, and I don't want you to miss it. In sending him to Jerusalem to follow the Levitical law, he was to go and offer a sacrifice to the priest, a sacrifice of two birds. One bird would be killed, and the blood of that bird would be uh, sprinkled on the other bird, which would then be released. The man would have the blood sprinkled on him, and then at some point, eight days later, he would be declared clean. The two birds are a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do as the propitiation for our sin. He would be the sacrificial lamb and as the scapegoat that's sent into the wilderness. So even as he's healing this man, he's he's reminding him, uh, according to the law, that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And God is far more concerned with the lost and sinful condition of our heart than he is our exterior. Verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. The leper turns out to be the epitome of the person who comes to Jesus for what he wants, but then refuses to submit to Jesus because he believes he knows better about how to live his life. Here's another paradox of Mark. When Jesus encounters the leper, Jesus is on the inside. He's got the hot hand. People want to be with him. And the leper is on the outside. And now, because the leper could not obey Jesus, the leper is restored to the inside of the social fabric of God's people, and Jesus is now on the outside. The man who came to bring God shalom and rest is not going to have any rest or peace. Conflict now becomes Jesus' never-ending, ever-escalating reality. Now, having come through this sequence of Jesus' life over a 24-hour period of ministry, I want to ask and answer a question and make an observation. I implore you just to bear with me. First, a question. Is Jesus still healing today? And to that question, I emphatically want to answer, absolutely. It's part of his ministry. It's one of the side effects of the cross and the resurrection. It's something that every single believer is experiencing in a myriad of different ways as part of his sovereignty over us. Here's what I want you to see. The fix is in. 
Jesus has accomplished our ultimate healing. But as we see in Jesus' ministry, our Savior is far more concerned with our eternal lives and preparing us for it than he is for fixing this broken life. God is after our hearts, which is good news for people who don't measure up in this world of external religion. Something new has begun with the inbreaking of God's dominion. And there's no need now for uh, rulings of uh, designations of clean or unclean. We can be washed and made white as snow. But what God is after, friends, is your heart. He's not just trying to fix your exterior. Still, we can and do experience God's healing power. It's just often we want to qualify what that looks like. Can someone be miraculously healed by God? Absolutely. Uh, We're going to see how God encourages that kind of prayer. But God can also heal through medicine. And which, by the way, when God gave Adam the cultural mandate to unlock the secrets of the universe, listen, we didn't come up with ibuprofen. Like it was hardwired into the universe. We just discovered what God already put there. So when I go to Jed and he says, hey, you got two ribs that are out of place. And then he uh, lovingly lays hands on. (laughs) then, Then he's just expressing something God already put in place. I'm experiencing healing, uh, God's sovereignty over my life that he's choosing to use someone else. So, yeah, it can be miraculous, but that's not the only kind of healing. When, when, When your mind, when God opens a new thought to your mind and he's renewing you in truth, that's a healing. When God is stirring in your heart and helping you to see something different, it's a healing. Like we're all in a process of being healed, but it's a now, not yet. It's not permanent. Momentary transformation is coming for every one of us when we'll be ultimately healed. But in order to have that, friends, you will have to breathe your last. This means, then, that for the redeemed, healing is not a question of if, but when. And I think the real question that people get fixated on is, is miraculous healing uh, in, in this life normative? And I think as we look at Jesus' ministry and the rest of the New Testament, we have to say, no, it is not. It's not normative. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, but still, in his ministry, he only ever raised three people from the dead, the widow's son at Nain, Jairus' daughter, and Lazarus. And do you know what happened to those three people? They had to get sick all over again and die. You see, every one of us is going to experience things that God is not going to turn back because he's not focused on this life. He's focused on eternity. Jesus' healings were meant to attest to who he is and to what he's done, but they are merely a glimpse of what will happen in the kingdom of God when it comes in its final form. It is not universally experienced yet, but the great reversal is in place. It has begun. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, God has put everything in subjection to Jesus. Nothing is outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but it is coming. Jesus wants you to be submitted to his reign no matter what happens in your life and not merely a spectator of wonders. One theologian said Jesus knew the only lasting cure for physical ailments was not the temporary reprieve of a healing now, only to die of something else later, but resurrection. The putting of the humankind into a condition where they are immune to disease and decay and death and no longer subject to the ravages of sin, suffering, and sorrow. This is your destiny. Now, that is not to say that healings don't happen or that they're not good, but simply to say that it is at most a foreshadowing. It is not really a full foretaste of the life that is to come. And Jesus is in the healing business, but what he says about those who are sick or in need is that they should go to the elders of their church 
and they will pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And what James says is the healing is up to Jesus. The Lord will restore them. I say this with deep pastoral concern. This is a very different thing from going to a faith healer who has amassed a crowd that Jesus was reluctant to cultivate on the basis that they have some special power from God. I've been in ministry for 34 years and I've seen people be deeply wounded by this sort of thing. Benny Hinn is a great example. Years ago, he was confronted by evangelical pastors for what he was doing. He repented and stopped doing it for a couple of years. But you know what happened to his crowds? They stopped coming. So you know what he started doing again? Telling everybody he had the hot hand. He can heal people instantaneously. At a church I used to be on staff at, we rented our facility out to a large Hispanic ministry. We thought it was for a Bible conference, but by the end of it, we realized it was a healing service. I stood at the back, not knowing what to do, watching a family, a mom and dad, carry their child who was bound to a wheelchair up the steps onto the stage so that this man could call down healing from on high. And you know what happened? He didn't get healed. And you know whose fault it is? Well, it's not the faith healers. It's the person who doesn't have enough faith. It's an anathema. It's a, it's a distortion of the gospel, and it scares me for people who follow it. This shallow, self-promoting, and self-aggrandizing view of healing is misleading and dangerous. And that's primarily because it doesn't take into account the weightier doctrine of suffering found throughout the Scripture. When Jesus was healing in Israel, there were 300 million suffering people all around the world in places Jesus was never going to go. Are we really to believe that in light of God's great love for his image bearers and in the wake of Jesus' self-sacrifice that he limits the display of his healing power in a handful of churches led by charismatic men? Or, or that it's about having enough faith when, the, when he bottom shelf uh, salvation to those who had childlike faith? In truth, God doesn't always heal in this life. And that isn't a question of his goodness or your lack of faith. It's just that he's sovereign, and he can have other purposes for you and me. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this. Three times he asked the Lord to remove a thorn in his flesh, to ask God to heal him. And God's response to him was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And it's precisely because of that, because God didn't remove the problem, that Paul is able to square with reality that we are all going to go through things that we will not recover from. And he wrote, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And this leads me to my observation. As healing comes, it could be miraculous. It might come through medicine. It might just be spiritual in nature. It's ultimately going to come when we breathe our last. When healing comes, know that it comes because it accords with God's will. And that means that it's because it gives God the greatest glory. This is the meaningful difference we see in the leper as compared to all the others who came to Jesus. Did you catch what he said? If you will, you can make me clean. Listen, it's right and proper to lay everything at Jesus' feet. There's no request that we can't bring before him, but every request should be submitted against the backdrop of God's will. This is precisely what Jesus was doing when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed, Lord, please take this cup from me. I don't want to treat this great suffering because of sin. I don't want to die. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And do you know what happened to Jesus? He suffered greater than anyone has. He suffered for you. He suffered for me. 
Why? Because he wants to be a magician who fixes all your problems? No, he, he's after your heart. And he wants to fit you for eternity. What gives God more glory? Healing you every time you have an ailment or redeeming your suffering? Truthfully, I don't know. But I know he does. And I know that when we pray our heart's desire for a child or for ourselves, and we pray it against the backdrop of his will, we can trust him to do the best thing. And in some cases, that will be to turn something back. In other cases, it will be to teach you to, to learn like Paul that his grace is sufficient for you and that his power is made perfect in your weakness. And that, friends, is a great hope. Listen, I'm, I'm just a lowly shepherd of a little congregation in Gunnison, Colorado. But I'm passionate about pointing you to Jesus and keeping you out of harm's way. There is no mortal man. There's no mortal man who has the insight, the wisdom, or the power to instantaneously know in a moment what God's will is for another person. That is so dangerous. It can be damning, and we should steer clear of it. God has given us a way to approach handling these things, and it's all about the body of Christ. A place where a shepherd or, in the future, a number of shepherds love you and know you and can cry with you and pray over you and then celebrate if healing comes and then walk with you in the valley if it doesn't, helping you to recognize that even there, God has a purpose. Jesus' ultimate purpose was not to deliver people from temporal ailments, but to save them from sin and eternal judgment. Meeting people's physical needs was a, a, a distraction, uh, 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 but it was a demonstration of his compassion and power to rescue sinners. Let us not divert our focus. Salvation comes only when we respond in repentant faith to the preaching of the gospel. And Jesus is far more capable of compelling a people to the gospel truth with joy-filled, faithful witness of people who have learned through the difficulties of life that his grace is sufficient for, for them than he is by wowing people with the temporary fixes of wonders. Listen, friends, the fix is in. Your healing is on its way. It may be instantaneous. If it's instantaneous in this life, it won't last. I would rather see you be prepared for the journey of walking with Christ through the difficulties of life so that when that day comes, there is a resilient smile and trust in Jesus fixed upon your face. And that's why this is a two-part message, why I came. Next week, I implore you not to miss it. We're going to return to these same passages, and I'm going to attempt to balance a belief in healing with the great doctrine, the weightier doctrine of suffering. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that everything is ours in Jesus Christ. That everything that Christ has accomplished uh, for us will be ours to experience. And, there, and yet there is a now and a not yet. I pray, Father, that you would help us to stay focused on you uh, and, and not place before you an expectation of how you're going to work in our lives. Some of us will, will experience instantaneous healing. I pray that it's the result of having gone to the elders of the church in which they are taught and fed, and it's the result of the process that you put in place, and not because some man says he has power. And then, Father, for the vast majority of us who will increasingly experience ailments that aren't going to go away, and it's going to lead up to that last one, may we find ourselves like Ina Sanderson saying, I just want to cooperate. 
94. Just want to cooperate with Jesus, whatever he wants. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be wise in rightly dividing the word of truth so that we might ably pass, uh, point men and women to you and to a fruitful life walking with you, whether that means always walking in victory or more likely walking in the valley of the shadow of death. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.